Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We're continuing our series today, The Ministry of Our Lord, with a message entitled, Jesus and the Family. So turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 19, verses 9 to 15, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. The term lifestyle, well, that's been a part of our vocabulary for a long time now. And it refers to anything from how much you make to how you want to live. When I say it refers to how much you make, I say that I'm mindful of the fact that apparently there's a television program that's entitled Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. I've never seen it, but I assume it's about massive estates and expensive cars and parties and the elite company you choose to keep. But lifestyle can also refer to whether or not you have a nine-to-five job or whether you contract your services rather than working nine-to-five and so to maximize your freedom. Lifestyle can refer to sexual choices. Lifestyle can refer to where you choose to live. See, I once knew a couple who lived 12 months of a year on a boat. It's a lifestyle. You know, another thing that lifestyle also entails is the decision many people are making all the time to forego marriage. Still another is to live life as unencumbered as one possibly can. And so the decision is often made, I'm going to remain childless. Indeed, on the issue of being unencumbered, there's a steadily growing number of people who think that freedom must mean having the freedom to change whatever you're doing with a minimum amount of fuss. And that's interesting, especially in light of the fact that the average household debt load of the average Canadian continues to rise at an alarming rate. And am I the only one to see the irony here? See, I want to be free to do whatever I want, and at the same time, I have become a slave to the banks and the credit cards and the other lending agencies. I mean, there's an easy way of explaining all of this. You see, people want to be free, but they don't know how to say no to the flesh or to say no to the wanter. I want the latest cell phone. I want the largest car. I I want the bigger house. I I want more jewelry. I, I want to see the world. I want, well, you fill in the blank. And because the debt culture means that taking on loans is so easy, and and because that means we're now still paying for something that no longer has the same level of attraction as it once had, it is truly slavery. So let's get back to the issue of lifestyles. See, we have noticed as we've studied Matthew 19 that, that Jesus is on the way to Jerusalem where he will arrive at Passover. And we've also noticed that the crowd is increasing and the ever-building excitement is the expectation that he really is the Messiah. And the religious establishment who sees this in horror is looking to get Jesus to say things that will scandalize his followers, and then he's going to lose momentum, at least. That's their plan. See, the question that was given to Jesus was the question of divorce. It was thought that no matter how he answered, he would divide his followers. But Jesus seems to have handled that question with remarkable skill by making the answer less about himself and everything about what the scriptures actually teach. Well, crisis was averted, but Jesus is not done. Since the question was about divorce, let's talk about lifestyle, or let's talk about how to live so as to be pleasing to the Father. And so Jesus begins to talk about the importance of family. So let's pick up where we left off. Notice again, Matthew 19, verse 9, 
that passage has Jesus saying, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. That is to say, Jesus held the highest view of marriage as an institution created by God not to be dissolved. If a divorce, says Jesus, is obtained for any other reason other than sexual immorality, which of course refers to sexual relations with anyone other than your spouse, and then a new marriage begins, that second marriage begins with adultery. Now, I need to stop at this point and add something from a pastoral perspective. You know, is Jesus saying that since the second marriage begins with adultery, that he's calling for the ending of the second marriage. And, and I, for my part, don't think that's what he's doing. You see, I think Jesus is actually saying that, yes, the second marriage begins with adultery, but it doesn't carry on in adultery. Yeah, but someone might say, well, look, if the second marriage begins with adultery, but once you get married, you're not supposed to break up the second marriage. So why not just take the chance, get remarried? Look, I know it's sin. And then after that, just repent. And then you can get on with your second marriage. Well, there's an answer to that. God is not mocked. See, I know of one man who told me exactly that. I'm going to get remarried, he said, and then we'll both repent. And then we're still married And you have to receive us back because you can't refuse a repentant sinner back into your church. And my response is what it's always been. Don't think you're more clever than God. God is not fooled by your hypocrisy. God is not put into a corner by your scheming. And God knows your heart much better than you do. No one has ever taken God on and then has won the day against him. Do you think you're stronger than he is? See, the other pastoral matter, of course, deals with the matter of adultery within marriage. See, Jesus is not saying that adultery necessitates a divorce, but it does open the door for one. You know, my pastoral counsel to those married people who have come to discover that their spouse has committed adultery, my counsel, slow everything down. Don't rush to the divorce courts and also don't rush towards reconciliation. Slow everything down, down to a crawl. I mean, what action will the adulterous party now take to ensure that he or she safeguards his or her life so that the desire for adultery is permanently purged from his or her heart? See, in most cases, it is necessary to move apart where possible to see if there is a genuine road of humility and a genuine road of hard and accountable repentance. See, when that happens, life can come back from the dead. But if the process is not slowed down and the offended party simply takes the other one back in a hurry, in most cases, adultery happens again. It's a matter of the flesh. But let's come back to Jesus. He's been making the point that marriage is intended to be permanent, at least permanent in this life. You and your spouse may have, you know, drifted apart over the years. You may have considerable disagreements with each other. You might be disappointed with each other. The passion may be gone. The delight you once found may have faded. The interest in common pursuits may have come to an end. But God has a word for you. You may not leave. You'll have to try again and again and again. You'll have to pray with fervency. You'll have to wait for renewal. But you're not to leave. And truth be told, the statistics bear this out, that by far the majority of couples who hang in there do find joy in the end. It is worth it. 
Faithfulness is immensely rewarding. Now, that's a lifestyle, and it's shocking to hear our Lord speaking this way. So listen to what the disciples say, Matthew 19.10. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. So it may be that the disciples had been influenced by the famous Rabbi Hillel, who had argued that any grounds for divorce was good enough. But whatever the disciples believed, these men were also realists. Yeah, it's true that marriage ceremonies, for the most part, are filled with the best of intentions and a deep, unshakable belief that they'll always be happy. But then, of course, real life happens. I know this about marriage and from my own marriage. Marriage has a way of shining the spotlight on all of our most sinful and selfish tendencies. Marriage is made to order two human beings to hurt and disappoint each other deeply. But marriage is also God's marvelous tool in which two people can't get away from each other so that they simply have to hang in there, keep working, keep praying, and watch as God does not permit them to run away. They have to forgive and exercise grace. Well, having said that, the disciples are not wrong. If this is the case, you might want to think about it. You might think it's far better to remain single, and that too is a lifestyle question. And Jesus has an answer to that. That's Matthew 19, 11 to 12. But he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who have been made so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. Now, of course, a eunuch is someone who has been castrated. You know, in the ancient world, there were many such people. Jesus put these people into three groups. First, there are those who are born with a congenital defect. Second, there are those who have been physically castrated by others. Most of these will have been treated that way when they were prepubescent boys. And third, there are those who have made themselves eunuchs. Now, who in the world would do number three? And furthermore, is Jesus saying that refraining from marriage is only for eunuchs? much more to say. These are challenging days. Many across Canada find themselves in circumstances that they would have never imagined. In times of crisis, we often find ourselves searching for something to place our confidence in. And for many, that means a rediscovery of faith. Maybe you're experiencing this yourself. This is the reason Back to the Bible Canada is steadfastly committed to offering Bible teaching you can trust every day with every medium possible, including this radio program. In short, we're committed to remaining faithful in declaring the trustworthy Bible teaching you've come to expect. Wherever people are searching for God, we want to be there. Your support of all the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada, including Laugh Again and our young adult ministry in doubt, is essential. To discover more about these ministries or to find out about our national ministry event, The Gathering, this coming September 27th, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. I was not aware that there were eunuchs in our contemporary world until I was shown them while visiting India. I was shocked, and from my vantage point, I would argue, from most people's vantage point, it's cruel and evil. We know that in the year 1599, it was the then Pope Clement VIII 
who gave the okay for boys to be castrated to sing in the church because their voices wouldn't change. Well, that practice went on for some 280 years until it was finally stopped in 1878. But we also know that in the ancient world that kings would castrate boys and then when they became men, they would serve in the harem of the king as, you know, they could be trusted with all those women. We read in Acts chapter 8 about the Ethiopian eunuch. And prior to that, we do read about the practice in the book of Esther. Human cruelty to other humans, it would seem, knows no bound. But it is in this final category that those who have made themselves into eunuchs and then is added the statement that those who are able to receive it should receive it. Well, how do we understand that? Was Jesus actually commending the practice of self-castration? Well, I don't think that's what Jesus is saying at all. Rather, he's speaking in a figurative sense. You see, what Jesus is saying is that abstinence from marriage is purely voluntary. No one's required to get married. You know, behind this, of course, is an assumption. Marriage, among other things, is the fulfillment of sexual desire. 1 Corinthians 7 verse 9 says, But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. That is to say, God has so designed marriage that it is the only place in which sexual passion is to be expressed. Scripture is quite clear. If you find that you can't control your sexual urges, don't let it bother you. Get married. And within the context of the holiness and loveliness of marriage, celebrate your marriage in the bedroom. And furthermore, 1 Corinthians 7 verse 5 expressly commands marriage partners not to deprive each other of the sexual act. Indeed, the Bible commands couples to be sexually active. You know, any marriage partner that deprives the other is acting outside of the will of God. God has designed marriage that sex is intended to be a part of it. Now then, let's get back to Jesus' statement about those who make themselves eunuchs. He means not that there are those who castrate themselves, but he means there are those who freely choose to remain single and through that will choose to remain celibate. And Jesus is affirming this as a legitimate and blessed choice. And why shouldn't he? Jesus himself was celibate. Paul, it would seem that his wife had either died or left him, and it also decided that he would remain celibate. I know a great many godly people who have made that choice. It's a legitimate lifestyle choice. But we also notice that Jesus says they do it for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. See, the reason should be obvious. Marriage takes a great deal of time and effort. Marriage most often results in children. Let me give you a little bit of information about children. One, they're cute. Two, they will take every selfish inclination in your life and stamp it out of you, and they'll demand a great deal. It's not a very hard thing to understand. I mean, keep having sex, and one day you may just find out that your kids are living in your house. They're going to eat your food, and they're going to demand to be clothed and educated and demand your attention. It's a lifestyle issue, one that God approves of. And there will be those for the sake of the kingdom who will devote themselves to uninterrupted ministry. They won't have to call their spouses and say, you know, they're out ministering at all hours of the night. Indeed, they can burn the candle at both ends, and God smiles and approves. See, I don't think the Apostle Paul would have accomplished what he did had he been married. Oh, very good, says Jesus. The one who can receive this, let him receive it. 
But if it is not a life you want, you've not sinned. And so after having said this, it should not surprise us now to see what happens next. Matthew 19, 13 to 15 says, Then children were brought to him, that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. See, the people that heard Jesus got it immediately. The normal way in which most people will live is in marriage. And that will mean children, because in that day, there was no such thing as birth control. Marriage plus sex means kids, rugrats, little squirming things. And the smile of God is on all of that. And immediately parents started bringing children to Jesus so that he might lay his hands on them and bless them. Now, that's to be expected. Historically, the Jewish people had a great love for children. Psalm 127 verse 3 says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. And Deuteronomy 11, 18 and 19 says, You shall therefore lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul, and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall teach them to your children, talking of them when you are sitting in your house, and when you're walking by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. You know, I've been to the Western Wall, or what some people wrongly call the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem, on a number of occasions. On several of those occasions, I have observed a Jewish father come to the wall with his sons in tow. He has the Hebrew scriptures with him, and and as he's there, he has his sons read from the scripture, and then he explains the scripture to them. All around the place, other fathers are doing just the same. See, I strongly suspect something very similar is going on on the female side of things at the wall. And the point is, The Hebrew families were trained to love their children as well as to train their children in the things of God and to do it purposefully and deliberately and see it as a divine task. You know, I'm going to throw in a word here, something that I suspect I'm going to get some criticism, but how well here goes. I've long wondered why we are so ready to dismiss our children for children's church during the preaching of the word. Look, I'm not talking about small children but older children. See, I know personally, and I've met a few adults who have told me that they still remember what I preached when they were little kids. And they actually remembered quite a bit. See, if truth were told, I think a lot of parents are afraid that, you know, their kids aren't going to sit still or they're going to make unwanted noises and they're going to cause distraction. But I do know this. It's not reasonable to think that kids who have never sat under the preaching of the word are suddenly going to gain an appetite for it as adults. It's far more reasonable to assume that that we have trained them not to be under the preaching of the word. So I'm just saying, I mean, don't write me nasty emails, okay? If you disagree with me, that's fine. But I want you to think about these things. Well, at any rate, for reasons I've never fully understood, I mean, given all the Old Testament says about the importance of children and the place of children, the disciples suddenly find them to be an annoyance and couldn't imagine that Jesus wanted to be bothered with them. And so the disciples rebuked the parents. I mean, you have to imagine them saying, this isn't good. Don't bother Jesus with Johnny and Susie, please. See, there are people who find children an imposition. You know, if that's you, you need revival. I mean, not you might need revival. You do need revival. 
You know, there are people who say, my cat or dog is my child. Well, great. I hope that Rover comes to visit you in the old folks' home or cares for you when you're too feeble. Look, Jesus rebuked the disciples. Let the children come to me. And then he adds, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. You know, back in chapter 18, Jesus made mention of the fact that unless we become like children, we can't enter the kingdom of heaven. He meant by that that children have little status, that children live lives of dependence on others. The kingdom of heaven is made of those who are humble and children. If we see their dependence, well, they're a wonderful lesson to all of us about what is required for the kingdom. God has deliberately placed children in our lives to teach us about grace. And with that, Jesus lays his hands on the kids. It's an act of blessing. What do we learn about lifestyle in the direction that Jesus gave to us? God doesn't want us to live independent lives. He wants single people to give themselves to ministry in ways that married people can't. And he wants married people to rejoice in each other and to welcome their children and to savor their presence. God wants life to be lived in family as we learn to minister to each other and put up with each other, live with inconveniences, and live a life of love. Life's not about getting what you want. It's about living a lifestyle that's glorifying to God. Thanks, John. You know, recently I heard a conversation about the devolving significance of the traditional family. John, can I ask you, has the family really lost its value in contemporary society? Well, I think in the minds of some, it certainly has, but we have to remember that it's going to be replaced by something. And the the crazy thing and the tragic thing is that in the minds of many people, it's replaced by the state. Um, You know, the the family is designed by God uh, to restrain evil. Uh, I'm going to say even discipline in the family is to teach little children um, that uh, there are consequences for their actions. Uh, God has designed the family to be the discipler of the next generation. But if the family falls apart and becomes chaotic, then the lives of the next generation becomes chaotic. And then that's all that's left to us is then go to the backstop of the state And the state never is loving and family-like. The state is always warlike and throws people into prison, all that kind of stuff. But see, when the family breaks down, the culture as a whole breaks down. And uh, so, you know, the family is still as important as it's ever been. That's what I'm trying to say. Thanks so much, John. Remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, The Ministry of Our Lord, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. We're excited at Back to the Bible Canada, Laugh Again and in Doubt, to announce a national virtual ministry event this September 27th called The Gathering. Join us in celebrating our common passion for the Bible and the significance of teaching its truth to a new generation. So we invite you to join us on Facebook Live September 27th at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern, right across the nation with special guest Dr. John Newfeld, Phil Calloway, musical guests including friends Shane and Angela Weeb, and many more to be announced. Join us for music, Bible teaching, laughter, ministry news, and more. Find out more at backtothebible.ca slash events. Visit the Back to the Bible Canada Facebook page or call us at 1-800-663-2425. 
Join us Sunday, September 27th for The Gathering.